So if you have a Bible, you might like to open it to Judges chapter 13. Um, because today we begin a new series. And um, I've, I've already questioned myself about what I've taken on here. Um, because we're going to be in the story of well, a fairly well-known but little-studied character in the Bible. We begin a new s- series um, which I've called The Extraordinary in the Ordinary. And just for those of you who might be following the script, I'm not going to follow the script particularly well today uh, just because of the time thing. So I did it slightly differently in the first service and I'm going to do it that way again. So I will get to read some scripture, um, but I'll do it a bit later. And I'm going to miss some bits out of the notes. So if you're following the notes, don't panic. I'm doing it deliberately. And if you want to know what I didn't say, you can go and find the notes or go look at it online. But I'm hoping that it's nothing of substance. It's more of the same. If You'll understand when you read it. Okay, so just don't get confused if you've got something in and I'm not following it. We begin a new t- uh, series today titled The Extraordinary in the Ordinary. And you might recognize that title because I've used it a few times before. And as far as I'm aware, it's my own phrase. Uh, I, I often steal things from books, and this one I haven't, although I have read it in other books after I've used it. So I'm going to take the credit for my own phrase because I like it. I think it's a fantastic way to describe the Christian faith because the Christian faith is ultimately about the extraordinary in the ordinary, isn't it? Yes, thank you. I also think it's a fabulous way of describing pretty much everything you will read in the text of the Bible. The Bible is a book, a collection of stories, of poems, of songs, of wisdom literature, of history, of prophecy, letters, vision, a book that is full of the extraordinary in the ordinary. I also think it's a wonderful way of describing or capturing or understanding how God most often chooses to work in the world. And we have previously used this title, The Extraordinary in the Ordinary, for a series about relationships in which we talked about topics like unity, humility, service, how we talk to one another, the extraordinary in the ordinary. That was followed by a series through the letter to the Ephesians. And those things are linked, of course, because what is extraordinary is that God chooses to do most of his work in and through the church. That's his people. Paul writes, it was his intent that through the church he's going to make known the immeasurable love of God to the powers in the heavenly realms through the church. That's you and me. That's what it says. So we find that God uses ordinary people to proclaim his extraordinary gospel, which is why the church, any church, this church, should be a radically different community than any other community. Because we have the gospel. And the Bible is full of examples where God takes seemingly ordinary things and transforms them. I, I am convinced, still, I think, that we often look for and seek God and expect God and want God to do spectacular things. Right? If, if, you're, if you're thinking about that, think about how you pray. Maybe it's just me, but most of the time my prayers are about God changing something and very often someone who is not me. And I want him to do it now. And I want to know he's done it. 
So actually what I'm asking is, God, can you do something slightly spectacular and just sort that for me? What I'm not in for is the long haul. I don't want to have to be different in this relationship because I want God to change it over there. I don't want to wrestle with this situation because I want God to change it here and now. Maybe it's just me. We often pray for the spectacular. We often seek the spectacular. And I know I say this, and you can challenge me on it, but it is my genuine concern about, you know, we all go off to these big things where it's going to be big and wow and they spend loads of money and they get loads of lights and really famous people and great bands. And we, we go thinking God is going to do something spectacular. Well, maybe he will. Don't hear me say that he can't. But isn't it the same God who's here every Sunday morning? Wasn't it the same God that we met in Malawi where all they had was four cans with some beans in them and two cans with beans in them with sticks on. And that was the only music they had. No lights, no stage, no nothing. And boy, did they worship God. And yet we go to the spectacular. Because we think somehow it's more God. I'm not convinced of that. Does that mean you shouldn't go? No, it doesn't mean you shouldn't go. I just think you need to be real about what's going on. We often desire the spectacular, don't we? That's what we want God to do. And yet, it seems to me that God does most of his work in and through ordinary things. He takes the ordinary and he transforms it. Now, this is where I'm going to skip a bit. So there's lots of examples in the script that I'm not going to give you today. Here's just a few. In Exodus 14, the story of the people crossing the Red Sea is written down. And the Israelites are trapped with the Red Sea in front of them and the angry Egyptian army Uh, fast catching them up behind them and the Israelites panic God's command to them in those moments is to do something really ordinary he says keep walking now you do that every day most of the day don't you you just keep walking it's the most ordinary thing to do but as the people keep walking and Moses stretches out his staff so the Red Sea parts and the Israelites go across. God takes an ordinary thing and he transforms it into an extraordinary event in the life of the people of Israel. In 1 Samuel 16, God takes an ordinary everyday sling of a young shepherd boy that he would use every day just to protect his sheep. It's the most ordinary thing he's got with him. And he uses it to win a mighty and extraordinary victory for the people of God. And then God takes this ordinary shepherd boy, the youngest in the family who nobody's interested in, whom the others overlook to become the greatest king that Israel ever had. He takes an ordinary boy and he transforms him into a king. In 2 Kings 5, is written the story of the healing of Naaman. Naaman, the commander of the army of Aram. Aram is part of Syria. Syria is the great power. Naaman was a good commander and Naaman was used by God, but Naaman had leprosy. His servant girl says, I know a guy who's called Elisha, who worships the Hebrew God. He is a prophet of God, and he can heal you. But Naaman gets really angry when he goes to Elisha, and Elisha tells him to do something really ordinary, and the servant girl challenges him and says, if he'd asked you to do something spectacular, you'd have no problem with that, would you? The truth is, Naaman is looking for the spectacular. But when he humbles himself... And he does the ordinary thing of washing seven times in the River Jordan. God transforms the ordinary act of washing into an act of healing. Now I could go on, but time is against us this morning. So there's other ones you can read. Go find them for yourself. It's packed with loads of them. When Jesus takes a bowl 
and washes his disciples' feet, he takes an ordinary way of welcoming, which was the, the normal thing to do, and he gives it a whole new meaning. The king of the universe, the almighty, the all-powerful king of all that is, takes the ordinary act of a welcome and transforms it and says, I, the king, have come to serve, and I have come to serve you. And then a little bit later, when Jesus takes ordinary bread and breaks it, and takes ordinary wine and drinks it, at a meal they have done many, many times before, he transforms it into the means by which he explained his whole reason for being on earth, his life, his death, and his extraordinary resurrection. He transformed it into the means by which generations of his followers have done and still do remember his sacrifice. And friends, transformation is still possible today when together we share and break ordinary bread and ordinary fruit juice as it happens to be here now. Because God is still at work taking ordinary things and transforming them. Now, when Jesus died on a cross, he transformed the ordinary. There was nothing extraordinary about a death on a cross in Roman times. Literally thousands of people were crucified on crosses. What was extraordinary was that the king of the universe allowed himself to be nailed to a cross at all. And his extraordinary death on a cross transformed the cross into the means of saving grace. And what is most extraordinary is that people like you and me are saved because of an ordinary cross and an extraordinary death. Everything in the Bible that tells of the extraordinary of the ordinary is telling us something of the extraordinary heart of God himself. And as we were reminded last week through the story of Jonah, God's heart is one that loves people I don't love and loves the people I don't even want to love. God's heart is a heart that is for people, all people, wherever they are and whoever they are. And the Bible, with all its examples of the extraordinary in the ordinary, is God's great story of love towards all people. And God's great story of love is that he desperately wants to share, to rescue, to love, to embrace all people. Jesus' extraordinary death and resurrection demonstrated most powerfully and most perfectly God's great story of love. He will do whatever it takes to win his people with his love. And here's something that is most extraordinary. It is an extraordinary truth that challenges me to the very core of my being. It is that God most often chooses to use ordinary people to make known the story of his extraordinary love. God could, presumably, choose to use the most spectacular things to grab people's attention, and I find myself often wondering why he doesn't. After, wouldn't it be much easier for him? <clears throat> Philip Yancey says, 
that miracles mostly don't lead to faith. The people in the Bible mostly who get healed don't follow Jesus. Maybe that's happened to you. I think it's to do with love. God always, always chooses the way of love. And it seems to me God's way of telling his great story of love is in and through ordinary people. People, in fact, just like you and me. Now, in these next few words, I may just be describing myself, but I have a sneaking suspicion that I might be describing you as well. Let's see how we get on. In my best moments, I am deeply loving, gracious, and kind. In my best moments, I think of others above and before myself. In my best moments, I want to seek God and give my life fully and wholly to him. And in my best moments, I try hard to do these things. In my best moments, I am compassionate and caring. I embrace rather than exclude, and I open myself to being loved by others. In my best moments, I serve God faithfully and sacrificially, and I use my gifts for the glory of the kingdom of the heavens. But I am not always at my best. And when I am not at my best... I am none of these things. When I am not at my best, I am selfish, ungracious, and I am quite capable of being dishonest. When I am not at my best, I don't see myself as God sees me, and I work hard to make myself the hero of the story. When I am not at my best, other people serve my interests, and I manipulate and arrange circumstances to make me feel better. I am in truth a flawed, fallen human being who can sometimes be at my best, but is often at my worst. And my guess would be that's probably true of you too. And here's a wonderful truth. God uses flawed, fallen human beings in his extraordinary story of love. In the same way the Bible is full of stories where God uses ordinary things and transforms them into the extraordinary, so God uses fallen, flawed human beings, ordinary people in his great story of love. Think about it for a moment and answer this question. How many people that God uses in an extraordinary way in the Bible are perfect? Well, it's not a trick question. It's not difficult either, is it? The answer is none. Okay, so just in case some of you are now worried, for the record, I put Jesus in a category on his own here. So you don't need to worry about my theology on that one. No, none of them. Noah, who we did a story a couple of weeks ago. Have you ever read the story of Noah? Just not the flood bit, but all the good bits to go with it. There are some really strange things in the story of Noah and there are hints of incestuous sex in that story. And yet God uses him to save people. Abraham. 
Abraham doesn't believe that God can give him a child or a son by his elderly wife, so he sleeps with his servant girl to solve the problem. And for the record, the whole Arab-Israeli problem stems from that child and that family. You can trace it all back. It's extraordinary what he set in motion by trying to figure out what God had said. Esther. Oh, don't we love Esther? Esther, beautiful, courageous Esther. Do you know what she does at the end of the story? When she gets power, she asks for another day of killing. Another day of killing her enemies. It's in the book. Go and read it. I have not made that up. David is an adulterer and a murderer. Peter proclaims that he will never fall away. He proclaims his loyalty, and then he lies about the fact he ever knew Jesus. Paul went around killing Christians. And then there's this guy we remember sometimes, bits of the story, but we don't often talk about, whose name is Samson. Here's the thing, and here's the point. They are all flawed, fallen human beings whom God uses in his great story of love. Now I'm going to read to you a bit of the story of Samson. I'm going to read to you from Judges. Uh, the text that you've got, if you've got the text, has more of it. I'm going to encourage you to go away and read the story. Because this is not going to be a series where we read a little bit and learn about that bit. It's going to be a bit more jumbled up than that. That's the way the story works. So here's a bit of the story just to whet your appetite. Judges chapter 13 verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. A certain man of Zorah, named Manoah, uh, from the clan of the Danites, had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now, just as a tangent, how many occasions in Scripture do you know where that's true? Where God promises something, but it's to a barren woman, I think it's to do with God saying, Do you know what? I am the one who gives life. Just a thought. Now see to it that you don't drink any wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite, dedicated to God from the womb. He will take and lead in deliverance Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Flip over to verse 24. The woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him while he was in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtonol. Now you're going to have to go away and read the bits in between and put the story together, but that's the beginning of the story. In this new series, we're going to spend some time dwelling in this story of Samson and seeing what we might learn. And I, the truth is, we are highly likely to find ourselves somewhere in this story. And God used this flawed, fallen human being in his great story of love. What we will discover, if you're not already aware of it, is the truth about Samson is that he was seriously flawed. He is often held up to be a hero. And he's probably best known and remembered as the man who sacrifices his own life in God's cause when he pushes the pillars of the temple down on the Philistines. Remember that bit? That's the bit we know, isn't it? But the truth is, it may not just be as simple or as good as it seems. 
Samson is known for his great strength. I recently bought a new suitcase, and I bought a Samsonite suitcase for the first time ever because they are supposed to be indestructible. It's in the name, isn't it? And ironically, I had to take the first one back because it broke. I hadn't even used it. It's like, what? Anyway. Some commentators, and you're going to have to weigh this because this might upset you. Some commentators take the view that Samson should be described as an ancient suicide bomber before bombs were invented, but you understand the point, of course. Okay, if you're struggling with that, he sacrifices himself in a greater cause, doesn't he? That's the point there. Kills a lot of people in the process. You can decide what you think as we go through the series. But this is a challenging story, friends. It is not for the faint-hearted. It is a story full of stomach-churning violence. If you go and read it, you'll think, what? High-stakes gambling. It's got quite a lot of sex and some of it violent. So get ready. And some of the ways that he has been described by commentators include the following. Profligate judge. That's not a great start, is it? The embodiment of all that was wrong with Israel. Which is slightly ironic because God is actually trying to save Israel through Sansom. Whole sermon in that, we'll get there later. A reckless, irresponsible, practical joker. A man full of high spirits and low ethics. He's not doing very well, is he? A trickster. A tragic figure blind to the larger purposes of God. He'll never make a Baptist minister, I'm thinking. It seems that Samson knew how to be bad. But then don't we all? Perhaps Samson was a man of great faith and great folly. And perhaps that's just another way of describing me or you. We are all capable of good and bad, aren't we? And mostly we hover somewhere between the two, I'm guessing. Go read the story of Samson. We'll do so together over the next few weeks. But you're going to have to wrestle with it. It's not going to be straightforward. And when I wrote this sermon, I'm thinking, what on earth possessed me? Well, how, how are we going to do this in all age worship next Sunday? Pray for me, because I'm trying to figure that one out. You know, how do you tell the story that's in the Bible without putting in the gruesome bits about how many people he killed? Uh, maybe we just have to tell the truth. For now, though, here's the challenge. Samson's story will challenge our faith. Samson's story will challenge our desire, I think, to follow God. Samson's story will shock us and maybe even make us feel unsure, disappointed, and probably at times will leave us wondering. And Samson's story, I think, will challenge us about ourselves. At least I hope it does all of these things. Perhaps Paul's words give us an insight into Samson's struggle and maybe the struggle that, if we're honest enough to admit, is going on in us right now. So I'm going to read from Romans chapter 7, beginning to read at verse 15. You'll recognize these words. I do not understand what I do. 
For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature, nature. for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We will, I think, find ourselves in the story of Samson. The good news, the really, really good news, is that Samson's story is in this book we call the Bible. This is God's great story of love. And Samson makes it in. And when we find ourselves in the story of Samson, we find ourselves in God's great story of love. Because it tells us that like Samson, God uses flawed, fallen human beings just like you and me. And if Samson gets into here and is welcoming the story of God's great love, then so are we. And the truth is that we are welcome in that story of God's great love when we are at our best and also when we are at our worst. Thanks be to God. Now I'm going to leave you hanging there. We're going to go over this story in the next few weeks. Go read it. Go wrestle with it. Um, Come and help me out from time to time when I get it wrong or don't understand it. But let's wrestle with it together. And in the moments that remain this morning, as we just sing a couple of songs together, maybe the invitation is to bring your real self, your best self, but also your worst self, honestly before God. And maybe take this moment just to tell him that you love him and you want to serve him again.